I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On today's episode, I have two guests, Allison Moore, the CEO of Comic Relief US, and Fardoza Hussein, who's a Comic Relief Youth Advisory Council member, a documentary photographer, and a filmmaker based in Somalia. We have a conversation about the impact that the pandemic will have on intergenerational poverty. This is a really important conversation because every time there's some colossal or disruptive event in this country, like 9-11 or the Great Recession, for instance, when the conversation shifts to the economic recovery from these events, rarely does the discussion address the impact to those already affected by intergenerational poverty. And we also talk about how we should respond and what's needed to break that cycle of poverty. Additionally, Fardoza discusses the unique ways the pandemic has impacted her community in Somalia. So, here is my conversation with Allison Moore and Fardoza Hussein of Comic Relief. Fardoza, Allison, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you for having us. So, we're two years into this worldwide pandemic, and, you know, when I say that aloud, it, it just feels so surreal, right? And one of the things that we've had lots of conversations about just generally is the major impact that the pandemic has had on economic inequality. You know, there's been a lot of data, a lot of reports that have come out. You know, showing us just how much it will impact marginalized communities. But one of the things I think is missing from those conversations is how the pandemic has affected those who are already impacted by intergenerational poverty, right? And that's something really specific. That's something very different. So I can pose the first question to you, Allison. What are some of the unique challenges that you think someone who is already disadvantaged due to intergenerational poverty will face due to COVID? You know, I uh, first of all, thank you for having us. And I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today and uh, with Fardosa as well. Um, I listen, we know we know that there um, when you look at intergenerational poverty, you know that there's been many, many kind of systemic barriers that have reinforced in it in really inequity for generations upon generations. And when you think about how pervasive that is in multiple different areas of people's lives, and so, I mean, just on a cursory level, of course, healthcare and the quality of that healthcare and access, of course, the educational gap and the kind of services levels that are offered in some communities and not other communities. And of course, as it relates to safety and, um, you know, experience, people who are experiencing homelessness and people finding shelter in the right ways for children who are, and particularly young people who are, are not finding safety at home and having to find safety other places. This gets exacerbated when communities who are who are living in poverty and don't have the right kind of bridges started at in in the root causes of these issues, and those are left kind of fallow. And then you have a major pandemic that kind of you know sits at, you know obviously it affects those communities even in more deeply. And I think some of the things we've been talking about here is that there's such a uh, you know dichotomy between who are Re, have rebounded from the impact of COVID, working from home, their paycheck wasn't stopped, They're, they have a home to begin with, their kids are online with Wi-Fi, going to school, etc. It's, you know, the, the impacts of COVID, you know, and everyone's been concerned about their health, but the vaccines have been accessible, a, a large inconvenience with obviously the, the weight of the world that comes along with that. But for communities living in poverty, that's a totally different scenario. And so COVID has just merely kind of laid bear what an already, you know, um, inequitable environment. And now it's set not only just exacerbated that environment, but set back people years, years of what was, you know, a slow amount of progress being made, certainly not enough, but it's just set it back even more. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I really want to make the distinction here, and and you can tell me if this is a good distinction to make at this point, but between poverty or, you know, like falling on hard times and intergenerational poverty, right? Because it's deeper and, you know, it's when your parents are poor and your parents' parents are poor. So you don't have, for instance, you know, there's a legacy of like poor nutrition, a legacy of, you know, inadequate education, and that hits harder. And I don't know if either of you can, you know, help make that distinction clearer for people. Um, Either of you can take that. Yeah, I mean, I we we know this that intergenerational poverty it really does trap both communities and families, and then of course the you know children that are are supported by both, in and and year after year, generation after generation, you know, resulting trauma, and uh, as we were saying, you know, whether it's lack of access to education, it's housing, employment opportunities, we know there's you know this there's an entire overlay of racial and gender inequity that goes along with that. You know, you look at from a global perspective, migration and internal displacement due to conflict, climate change. There's a number of things. And so the, you're right. It's not um, it's far deeper, far more deep reaching and systemic than than just I don't I don't mean this, in, you know, than falling on hard times. That's too. First of all, I think that's a completely different scenario. And secondly, I think that's way too zippy of a way for somebody to just kind of say that and then move on. It's harder to look at the kind of systemic inequities, we, but we must, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, people want to wrap, say a statement. That's not the statement. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. we, we have to look at the larger issue. Right. And I wanted to make that distinction when we're talking about solutions, right? right? Because when you, when you come up with solutions, which is what your org does, um, you, you, you have to look at the generations of poverty and it has to be, I would imagine, kind of longstanding, right? You have to look at the future generation to make sure that, you know, there are their access to assets and et cetera and things like that. But so for Denzel, what does this look like in your community? Um, do you see the distinctions between, you know, families or people who are struggling with intergenerational poverty and maybe people who have made more assets or just a little more privilege in relation to the pandemic? What does that look like where you are? I think, like Alison said earlier, I think it has definitely affected the slow progress that we've been making in our communities. Because one thing that happened when the pandemic happened is that if you look at um, society like Somalia, you have to look at it from a social, how things affect um, the society. You have to look at it from a social, cultural, economic, and all-rounded perspective. Because what happened is when the pandemic happened is um, a lot of girls were being married off because parents could not support them. Um, a lot of youth uh, and especially young men and young boys were forced to now go into um, looking for work, looking for labor. And it was not accessible because with the pandemic, people had to stay home. People had to um, have a have have backup at home and most, I mean, most um families didn't have that backup plan. So what happens is that you find that a lot of girls have been married off. Youth don't have access to quality education because in the rural communities or in the rural areas, you'll find that internet access to internet is minimal, not just the internet itself, but also access to equipments that can access internet is also minimal. So there cannot be uh, distant learning or, you know, learning uh, virtually so it has affected the community in a very very um, big way and it has exacerbated the problems that have already been there by uh, by far because if you look at it in a place like Somalia already a problem like hunger 
has already been existence. Poverty has already been existence. When we talk about intergenerational poverty, we are coming from a place that the country has been through um, 30 years of war and uh, we were slowly making progress. But now all of that was um, was affected because now it means that we have to start from uh, somewhere again, you know, because there's been problems already and then now those p- problems have been made even worse by the situation that is at hand. And considering the fact that a place like Somalia is already dealing with security pr- problems, so you find that there's a lot of pr- problems and it's social, it's cultural, it's economical and it's security related. So yeah, there's been a lot that has affected the communities, but we are again in the process of making slow progress again. Well, so I'm, I want to ask you just to go back a bit about um, the young girls or girls rather who were, who were you know kind of forced or you know encouraged to go into a marriage because their families couldn't support them due to the the economic fallout of the pandemic. So what does that mean exactly for for them? Um, Does that mean they have to start families earlier? Do they have to, you know, put off plans to go to school or, you know, what what does that look like? It means all of that that you've said. It means um, putting off uh, going to school. It means starting families early. It means that now that she has to also fend for herself, fend for her family that she's uh, she's about to start. And what that encourages is another form of intergenerational poverty because this girl is coming from a family that is already poor and the reason why they're marrying her off is because they need to for lack of a better word lower the burden for the family or yeah lower the burden for the family so that they are able to now use the uh, minimal resources they have with the young ones at home so that means the girl is being thrown into another um, situation or dilemma this means she has to look for another backup plan. She has to come up with ways of ensuring that now with her new family, she has to uh, make sure that she's able to support the family, of course, with the help of her husband. But most of the time you'll find that that is not the case, and especially in the rural areas, because you find that men go to towns to look for jobs, leaving the family behind. So a lot of times you'll find that the lady now, will find herself in a situation where after she gives birth, she might suffer from malnutrition herself. The child might suffer from malnutrition. And this is just a a replication of something that has happened in her family. It's something that is just being repeated. It's repetitive. So this, you've already experienced this. Your child will experience this. Their child will experience this, this thing. So that is how it's been affecting a lot of girls, not just now. It has been happening before, but now with the pandemic, a lot of families are opting to do that more often than before. Right. And, and you can see very clearly how that could affect intergenerational poverty. Um, now, you lead the Youth Advisory Council at Comic Relief. So what, what work do you do there to help with these kind of issues that you've just mentioned to me? Can you describe some of your work with the Youth Advisory Council? Uh, so Youth Advisory Council um, is a council that has brought together eight young leaders from various places across the globe. That is uh, U.S., uh, Somalia and Kenya, Colombia and Cambodia. And uh, the work we are doing is actually we have co-funding areas or we we focus on certain issues around access to quality education, access to mental health and issues around hunger. 
So we have um, come up with a fund called the Hutanza Fund, and I, I'd love to call it um, our labor of love and hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fund that we came up with uh, in conjunction with the grant-making team at youth, uh, at Comic Relief, sorry. And it's um, through this fund, we are able to fund youth-led organizations and we also focus on the priority areas that I just mentioned, access to edu- quality education, mental health, and hunger. And we are funding organizations that are youth-led in Kenya, Somalia, Colombia, Cambodia, and the United States. And I think through this platform, we've been able to come together, we've been able to discuss local problems and giving local solutions based on the countries we come from. So through the Youth Advisory Council, we've been able to meet on a bi-weekly basis uh, during the month. We've been also able to have mentorship uh, sessions. We've been also able to have like peer learning programs where we talk to peers or fellow youth from other uh, advisory boards or advisory councils themselves. And we've been able to share, we've been able to learn from them, and we've been able to also share on our own experiences. So it's been it's been a learning curve in a way, but also it's been able to show to show most of us that with the Youth Advisory Council, it's shown us that when you are able to bring people from different places across the world, the problems are still the same. The problems are global issues, whether it's around hunger, poverty, climate change. These are issues that are same all over. So like bringing together people like us um, in the Youth Advisory Council has been able to give us the opportunity to be able to come up with local solutions for local problems. And it's something that is shared across. So, yeah. You know, I find this model so unique. I mean, most organizations like this that, you know, help youth and, you know, help younger people, they're, they're led by adults. They're led by older people. And I'm curious as to why, Allison, if you want to answer this, why you think it's important to bring young people to the table to come up with some of these solutions? Yeah, I, I mean, this is sort of part of our ongoing commitment to thinking about empowerment. And what does that really mean? And how do you sort of support the empowerment of folks, particularly young people, to make change. And that's, you know, in their own communities with their own sort of sense of agency, but also from an organizational standpoint, how do we how do we bring young people in and, you know, to have a seat at the table and involving them in our work? I mean, it's, you know, in some ways, if you're going to look to solve issues for, for young people, tapping the experience of folks who have you know, are closer to that, whether it's age and or experience combined, you know, they have, there's more of an innate connection to the issues that are, that are most impacting young people. And then also understanding probably better the, the solutions that feel most innovative, you know? I mean, I think, you know, part of our thesis is that we can bring young people to the table to sort of give us a new lens on how those funds get directed, where they go, what are the kinds of things that could really make material and meaningful impact. And so, you know, I think from from our standpoint, the Youth Advisory Council, you know, of which Fertos is a member and, you know, is really started on this idea of participatory grant making. So how can we, we've got this really um, incredibly thoughtful and, and focused grant making team here at Comic Relief, where, you know, while we, we do a lot of, of things to kind of fundraise the dollars, the, where we allocate those dollars towards the programs that we know are are really there to support and move the needle against 
you know, child poverty in the in the event of Red Nose Day, but intergenerational poverty more broadly. The idea was bringing this this young people, this lens of the young people, and bringing this youth group together. And the the construct of the Youth Advisory Council was like, okay, they can sort of sit side by side with us in the grant making process. You know, zoning in on the things that they they have identified as being super important. Um, and as Fardosa had said, you know, around hunger and the educational gap and mental health needs was sort of the the remit that they they identified from close proximity to knowing what is going on in these communities. You know, there's multiple groups um, led by adults, and that's good. But this is uniquely led by these young people and steered in that in in the sort of direction that they felt you know, needed to go. And, and you can see, I think the resulting path is different and, and good. And, and from an organizational perspective, you know, their, their voice along with our team, it just, it, it improves our work and it emboldens our grant making approach, you know, in many ways as an organization and, and we're grateful for it. Right. And when you think about it, it seems like a no brainer to bring in the people that you're trying to help <laughs> into yeah. the solution. Right. Um, you know, but uh, speaking of the funding, you have two major initiatives that I want to talk about. I think one is a $10 million innovative and growth fund to incubate new ideas, right, to help end intergenerational poverty. Can you tell me more about that? I mean, who does it go to individuals, organizations? Just tell me more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a really um, this is the first time we've done anything like this. And it sort of, just to give some backstory on that, it's born out of the perspective that, you know, we we look in, the, in this organization in the U.S., you know, we've raised almost $300 million in the last six years to sort of, you know, uh, fuel and fund our work. And we think we've had an incredible impact um, along with the, the organizations that we support, but we know we can be doing so much more. And so, you know, in some ways, this is the recognition of, okay, the, the way the model works, and my background is not originally from nonprofit, it was more from the commercial and, um, you know, corporate sector. And the, the biggest sort of head scratcher to me when I got in here to a nonprofit was just how the model works, how you actually can fund for innovation and growth. And, you know, we raise, uh, we raise dollars, the lion's share, as it should be, go to programs, but it leaves very little for for the ability to invest in the organization to kind of scale for the capabilities that do drive more growth. So building capabilities to grow more opportunities, uh, meaning um, to fundraise and build more ways to raise more money so that we can give more money to programs and start to think about where, how we build those programs out differently. I mean, certainly, you know, we know some of the factors of intergenerational poverty are keeping children and their families and communities safe, obviously healthy. We've uh, talked about empowerment and empowered in communities and what that means, you know, leadership development and opportunities for economic growth too. And then, you know, and, and when you think about, and, and education, of course, which is a cornerstone, but what we want to be able to do is that, yes, fund more of those programs, but even more, like what are the kinds of, you know, more social impact funds that we want to support? You know, how can we, Come up with new models for social impact. I mean, all of that takes innovation. It takes partnerships. It takes it takes new kinds of ways to reach um, folks, and and it takes 
more folks to work on it from even to support those programs, you know, to bring in another, another, you know, do another round of the Youth Advisory Council. I mean, right now we have a very discreet amount of dollars that go towards the Youth Advisory Council's work today that Fordosa is talking about, but I would like to do more of those programs and I'd like those funds to be even larger so that we can have the sort of agency of the young people that we're working with be even stronger and their impact felt even stronger by increasing the amount of funds there. But all of this takes money. So this is what the the $10 million Innovation and Growth Fund is meant to do, is kind of help us, you know, it's like a capital campaign where it's capital to kind of fund my capabilities to kind of raise more to then be able to make more impact. And the sort of things that we want to raise dollars more, like we run, as I mentioned, Red Nose Day, which is this incredibly engaging campaign in which, you know, for our, our unique space in the world is that we are, we activate, you know, what is a very simple kind of almost absurd idea of this sort of bright red nose that goes on people's faces. And it's an, it's a small moment where it, it, it pops people out of the head of their day to day. And then they rem- it, it is a, a creative way in which we engage people to give and to think about issues that are above and beyond their everyday world. And it's been enormously successful on public fundraising to do just that where people are at Walgreens giving one, two, ten, five dollar donations when they're watching NBC and, you know, being moved by something that they heard, they're hearing about a story that somebody's telling and giving donations from their own hard earned dollars towards the cause. Like we we do that very well. And we, you know, we rely on the goodness of celebrities that we know. We activate in digital. We have it in streaming. We look at, you know, building scale. We partner with companies that have sort of a like mind in terms of the values, like we, that's what we do. If we do that in April and May and do that through the year, why can't we do that with another kind of event? Why can't I do that with a sport relief and have that centered around, you know, Brenner's Day is centered around um, child, ending child poverty. Why can't I do that with a sport relief and think about some of the big brands and names in sports and some of the big, incredible athlete talent who are incredibly focused on the communities from where they came, empowerment, social justice, Can I build a fund around that? Can I build a sport relief? I sure can if I can get the capabilities to do that. You know, I would love to think about rebooting a comic relief event, you know, bringing back the OG of comedy and and events and doing something a little bit differently and building this incredible experience in a way to sort of support all the issues that we are concerned around with um, safety and homelessness and youth trafficking or, you know, there's just so much more that we could be doing that's based on the model that we do with Red Nose Day again, to support the kinds of programs that we, we know are innovative. And, and you know, to, in many ways, Youth Advisory Council is a proof point to that. And we see it. And, it, and we started this journey at the beginning of the year, and we can see already um, the momentum we've had. Like, we just, more of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love Red Nose Day. I mean, it's such a great idea. You know, the Red Nose is just so eye-catching. Right. Um, but, you know, also you talked about, you know, investing in programs that help you raise more money. It's, it's more than just giving funds to programs that help pull people out of poverty, but you're investing in growing the funds that you have for those yep. initiatives. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's um, what, you know, we feel like there's so much more that we can expand, even if, to your point on the pillars that we have, you know, safe, healthy, educated, empowered are the four pillars of our work. There's so, so much more to do. And, you know, there's so much more along the lines of the, and we talked about this in our panel, you know, when we say empowerment, it's yes, youth led initiatives, for sure. But it's also smaller, BIPOC led, community led organizations that don't otherwise get asked to to the table, don't get access to those kinds of funds, you know, 
Um, we want to bring more of those kinds of organizations to the table to be part of our grantee environment too, across our core pillars. But supporting, you know, what what that could do is, as like an accordion, increase the number of grantee partners that we support. Which, by the way, is what we should be doing. But that it increases our the support that we need to provide to them in order to be good partners to them. Do you know what I mean? And in corporate organizations, that's recognized right off the bat. Do more have more capabilities to support. But I find that to be more of a challenging concept in the nonprofit world. When I think about intergenerational poverty, when I read about it, one of the things that keeps coming up is asset wealth. And, you know, I I don't know how one would even address that. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, for instance, you know, during the pandemic, maybe you lost a job or had a pay cut and maybe you couldn't pay your mortgage. Right. But if you have, you know, assets in your family, asset wealth, maybe there's an, another home in the family. Right. Or you have 401k. I don't even know. How do you address something like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a conversation there around these are root causes. Right. These are the things that when you, you, you're not even able to get access to the mortgage loan or, um, you know, I mean, I think you mentioned this earlier, the educational gap in your background is so great that you, you're you're not even sort of like given that perspective as it's as it's a possibility available to you right you know like that there's all these things that just kind of continue that that cycle and that goes way back to also just you know issues of systemic racism and blocking certain communities from access way way in the back of time but these are continuing. The effects of these are continuing today. And look, these are these are issues that are still continuing as well. It was, uh, you know, these are not issues that have gone away. But in the communities, they're just being recycled over and over again. I think there is, there are things happening now to tackle those areas. But it all goes down to like thinking about that from where the places from where it starts, and really thinking about outcomes of increasing people's and communities' socioeconomic mobility. You know, that has to be an outcome that's on the list. It's not only, although this is very important, so I don't want to, I'm going to be clear about that, but it's not only ensuring folks get their vaccines, for instance, meaning like, you know, uh, the child vaccines. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, It's, it's actually when you put on the list the outcome of like, yes, shots, for sure. Yes, Wi-Fi in schools, for sure. But when you put on the outcome, increasing socioeconomic mobility, that's of a different lens. That's a broader goal. But those are the kinds of things that need to be talked about, as well as the other more fundamental things that have been uh, largely focused for many years. And we continue to focus because they're important. But it's, it's a both and, you know what I mean? Right, exactly. I mean, you know, it's it's such a complex problem because you, you brought up the issue of vaccines and, you know, obviously we're talking about the economic fallout due to the pandemic, but you can see the effects when we're talking about health and intergenerational poverty when people who have had, you know, less access to health care, they don't fare as well if they happen to, you know, get COVID, right? They don't fare as right, well, well right. in their outcomes, right? And that's just another marker of inter- intergenerational poverty. Yes. Well, nutrition, right. And, and right. food deserts and food scarcity and not, and, you know, having the only stores around you that are just kind of packaged, packaged foods with, you know, junk foods, right. And you have to travel 20 miles to get an apple and then it's overpriced, you know? So I think you're absolutely right. That's uh, it. They're all contributing to that issue yeah. for sure. 
Alfredo, uh, you and I were kind of talking offline about this before we started about in your community in Somalia about how, you know, you've seen this, you know, year over year, decade over decade, you know, poverty and food insecurity. Whenever I talk about this, I always have this competing thought that pops into my head is that, you know, how can we have had this problem for so long with so much wealth in the world? And I don't have any answers. It just always pops into my head, right? And so it got me thinking about, you know, is there a way that we can quantify or has it been quantified what we need to actually end this food insecurity, for instance, can we quantify the need for that? Like, what is the dollar figure? How do we know when we are headed towards success? I think from a local point of view, honestly, uh, like, like I said earlier when we had this conversation, I think we already know where the problem started. Uh, it's it's something we don't have control over. A civil war happened in 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 our country, and that is that we have thirty years that is gone. But I think what we can quantify as success moving forward is how what can we do now? How can we involve different people in our society to ensure that as we move forward, we are making progress. And I believe that for us, because 70% of the population in Somalia is youth, I think we need to bring more youth to the table. I think we need to work with the youth more if we want to end intergenerational poverty, if we want to deal with hunger. Because a lot of the people, like if you look at young women, for instance, in our country, a lot of them are getting married because parents cannot afford to maybe keep them in school. Parents cannot afford to keep them at home. So they transfer the problem by ensuring that they deal away with them or they give them off um, in form of marriage so that they can be able to deal with the their situation in their own way. I think if we can work around ensuring that there is access to quality education, if we can work around ensuring that there is policy in place to ensure that youth employment or the number of opportunities for youth employment is around. Uh, I think we can work on ensuring there's progress. I think when we deal with issues around hunger, poverty, issues around uh, access to quality education, we can be able to quantify progress, not maybe in like say five years, but in 10 years we can say we're making progress and maybe in 30 years we can say, we are working towards a long-term plan to ensure that we deal away with hunger, we deal away with poverty, and we have access to quality, either education, quality life for the people in our community. I think it's something that will take time, but we need to involve, especially youth. And when I look at a country like Somalia, we need a lot of youth engagement in programs, in um, policy development, in every aspect of the aspect of the community and aspect of anything that needs to be worked on as a country. I think quantifying the problems, you know, on the front end is, is really recognizing in some ways we must approach solutions to, to attack the root causes and, and the consequences of intergenerational poverty. For many years, the consequences have been the focus in some ways easier to attack from a sort of solution perspective. Because when you start looking at the root causes and particularly when you're dealing with systemic inequities, that it, the work becomes harder, but that is the place that, that requires focus. Maybe more now than ever, and particularly laid bare in a pandemic, which just 
for all the reasons that we've just discussed, have really shown a light on how impactful those inequities, particularly over generations, have on people's, you know, on everything in their lives, but, you know, at a, on, a, on a single point, their health and their ability to survive COVID, <laughs> right? So it's, it is, there is a quantifiable evidence within the context of, of that being the spectrum of place where solutions need to be applied. And that's, I think that's where our work sits. On the quantifiable element for solutions, you know, that's what our team is just steeped in and, and, you know, in partnership with, with our grants, you know, our grantee partners, um, both the ones that Fardosa and the Youth Advisory Council have identified as a part of their Juntanza fund um, that they're supporting, but also for comic relief writ large and the, and the grantees that we support here, you know, we're in constant conversation and, and support, you know, dialogue with them to sort of understand like what, what are the things that are, what are the programs and the initiatives that are we're seeing results, you know, and keeping that idea of quantifiable data on the impact and outcomes. This is, you know, we we have a responsibility to do that in partnership with our grantee partners to kind of understand where we can best fund them to to have impactful work. And and that's that's required too, you know. Um, and that's more about like ensuring that we're not giving dollars to you know, in concert with our grantee partners, applying dollars in places that aren't having the kind of desired impact that we we know we want to see as defined by the solutions at the front end that we're trying to apply to intergenerational poverty. Right. Um, you know, in terms of the audience, I'm, you know, I my <laughs> the first answer I always have is, you know, um, so of, of course, supporting comic relief, but, you know, <laughs> if, I, if I'm not going to be that specific, you know, I, I think it's, Pay attention to where you're putting your dollars in terms of the intent, you know, the intentions of the work um, that you're supporting. You know, I think it, it dollars and contribution and mindfulness um, around supporting these programs. It's it's important. I think um, there's no ending of the kinds of need and support that's just required now. And I, I fear that, you know, we we've moved into a space perhaps, or where we're headed into a space, I will say, you know, we, we're, I feel grateful for every dollar that we receive from the donating public, from our corporate partners, from, I mean, it really, it amazes me every year, the unending generosity of people. I do think we're seeing in the, in the sort of universe right now, a sort of donor fatigue, you know, a trepidation about what the future looks like. Um, certainly everything that's going on with Omicron and the COVID, I mean, you know, there's just, and, you know, in the U.S., when you're talking about donations in the U.S., there is inflation and folks looking at their toilet paper costs are up, you know, whatever, 30%. These are real issues, you know, these yeah. are people from working families and, and, and often, you know, these are, these are places where people, it gives pause before they give. And so I, I think, you know, for the audience and, you know, for myself, for my own family members, I, we talk about this a lot, maintaining perspective that while things feel um, a little uneasy for me right now um, or somebody right now, uh, the, the donation from you to a program that you support, whatever program that is, will have material impact on for people who this time is not just uneasy, it is 
devastating. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as we're heading into 2022, I always like to start the year off with thinking about, you know, what's important to me this year, you know, what, what, where do I want to give my, you know, resources, <laughs> you know, depending on how major they are, you know, in a given year, you know, sometimes it's gun violence, sometimes it's a, I guess, gun control. And, but this one, I think based on the conversation we've had today, this covers so much, right? Intergenerational poverty, you know, nutrition, education, you know, assets, you know, just kind of a long-term outlook. I think mean, this one, I, I would imagine you would get a lot out of that, right? There's a lot of value to come out of that donation versus just kind of a single, single path. So, well, I think that that's, you know, it's the, it's the recognition, you know, it's the, it's in some ways the answer to the question that everybody always feels, which is like, I, there's so many, there's so many things contributing to poverty and specific intergenerational poverty. How do I know where, where to apply that? And that's, I think what we do is sort of work across all of these different areas in a in a sort of blended way to make sure that we are supporting in a broader set across all of these things because it isn't just one thing sadly it's not just one place to fix <laughs> yeah yeah well on that note i want to thank you allison and Fardoza, for joining me um you know i thank wish you, you a happy new year <laughs> just thank you so much for everything you're doing Thank you. Well, happy holidays to you and your family and New Year and all that good stuff. And thank you so much for having us on. Thank you.